Hello, Daniel Barnett here, and welcome to episode 62 of Employment Law Matters. In this episode on age discrimination, you'll learn three things. First, you'll learn about the different types of age discrimination. Second, you'll learn about justifying age discrimination. And third, you'll learn the main exceptions to the laws against age discrimination. Age discrimination is probably the protected characteristic which gets the least press, yet it's the one we all share. And over the course of this podcast, I'm going to be shining a light on the issue of age discrimination, looking at its idiosyncrasies and showing you how to avoid falling foul of the law. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. The Equality Act 2010 sets out the different kinds of age discrimination. An employer mustn't directly discriminate against an employee because of age without objective justification. Remember that an employer can't justify any other kind of direct discrimination, such as direct sex or direct race discrimination. Age stands on its own here in that you can justify age discrimination if it's direct age discrimination. Second, an employer mustn't indirectly discriminate against an employee by applying a policy or practice to all employees, which has a negative impact on people who share a protected characteristic, such as being the same age or in the same age group, again, unless the employer can justify it. Employers can't harass someone due to age, and they can't victimise someone by treating them badly because they've raised a complaint of age discrimination. I'll talk about these four things in a little bit more detail. First of all, direct discrimination. Direct discrimination can occur if we allow ourselves to be influenced by stereotypes. So if an employer assumes that an employee who's over 60 is past it and deliberately excludes them from an opportunity for promotion, that's going to be direct discrimination. It's less favourable treatment because of age. Direct discrimination can arise in job adverts unless employers are careful. So using words such as youthful enthusiasm in adverts or focusing on drive or motivation during recruitment can trip you as an employer up. It can result in the unfair recruitment of younger but less experienced and less able candidates over an older applicant. Similarly, using words such as traditional for example, saying someone might be suited to a more traditional workplace might be problematic because those words allude to being old fashioned or set in their ways in a manner that wouldn't be used with a younger person. So language is key. Direct discrimination can also arise in collective exercises such as redundancy when an employer is looking to keep costs to a minimum. Often the employees with the biggest potential redundancy packages are the older employees with longer service. So any decision to limit voluntary redundancy exercise due to age based on cost is likely to be discriminatory and will have to be justified. Then there's indirect discrimination. That can occur if a provision, criterion or practice, which looks fair on the surface because it applies to everyone, negatively impacts on people in a certain age group. So if an employer requires a certain number of GCSEs without accepting equivalent qualifications, that might indirectly discriminate against older applicants who took exams before 1988. Confession time, I took 
O-levels. Likewise, if an employer asks for 10 years industry experience, that's potentially going to rule out younger applicants and will be indirectly discriminatory unless the policy can be objectively justified. If a company introduces a new requirement that an employee possess a law degree to move into the top band of pay, that might disadvantage older employees. An employee in their 60s might be unable to complete a degree before retirement. Such a policy would have to be objectively justified. So that's direct and indirect discrimination. Harassment, the third of the four, is unwanted conduct, again, in this case related to age, which has the purpose or effect of violating someone's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, offensive or humiliating environment for them. A very well-known statutory provision from the Equality Act that was written by somebody with a theosaurus right next to them. If an employer tells an older employee with years of experience in their field, including recent experience, that they're out of touch or that the employer needs new blood, that's likely to be harassment. It's conduct that has the purpose or effect of violating someone's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading blah, blah, blah. Telling ageist jokes, even if they're not aimed at any individual, might also be harassment. Victimization, the fourth, is where an employee is treated badly because they've raised allegations of discrimination, brought a discrimination claim, or given evidence in relation to somebody else's or indeed their own discrimination claim. If an employee raises allegations of age discrimination with her manager and her manager then refuses to put her forward for promotion as a result, that's likely to be victimization. The issue in the majority of age discrimination cases isn't so much whether there's been discrimination, it's whether the discrimination is justified. And to objectively justify any kind of unlawful discrimination, you've got to show as an employer that your action was a proportionate way of achieving a legitimate business aim. The rules are slightly different for justifying direct and indirect discrimination, Harassment and victimization can never be justified as a matter of law. Let's look at direct discrimination first. For direct age discrimination, the legitimate aim's got to be a social policy reason, a big reason, or have some sort of public interest benefit. So your private interests as the employer aren't enough. The Court of Justice of the European Union's identified two such social policy aims. The first is intergenerational fairness, and the second is dignity. So in a case called Selden against Clarkson, Wright and Jakes, the employer, which was a well-known firm of solicitors, operated a compulsory policy where employees and indeed partners had to retire at the age of 65. The retirement policy facilitated staff retention by providing a career path for younger solicitors. It also allowed workforce planning, knowledge of when people would retire, so the solicitor's firm could plan for their replacements. Now, this contributed, held the European Court of Justice, to the social policy aim of sharing jobs fairly between the generations, intergenerational fairness. The compulsory retirement policy also limited the need to performance manage older employees out of the business, which related to the social policy of maintaining employee 
dignity. For indirect discrimination, there doesn't have to be a big-picture social policy aspect to the business aim. There's got to be a real business need for the policy or practice, and what you do as employer has to be a proportionate way of achieving that need. It's also important there are no ways of achieving that same aim that aren't discriminatory. Now, costs alone, it is said by the Court of Appeal, can never amount to objective justification for indirect discrimination, but cost can be considered when combined with any other reason. This is often called a costs plus rule, and you'll often see barristers and judges scrabbling around for a reason to add that something to cost. So while the cost of having a particular rule won't be enough, the cost of having that rule, plus some teeny little extra reason such as administrative ease or being nice or pretty much anything, can be enough. Let's finish off this episode by looking at the exceptions to the rule prohibiting age discrimination. The Equality Act 2010 sets out the exceptions to the rules on age discrimination on top of the general exceptions which span protected characteristics such as occupational requirement and positive action. So what are they? Their national minimum wage, I'm just talking about the main ones here, there are lots but I'm dealing with the big ones. National minimum wage, service related benefits and pay scales, redundancy pay and retirement. Let's start with the national minimum wage. The most obvious legal exception to age discrimination is the national minimum wage because that allows different pay for different categories of worker based on their age. There's a specific exception for the national minimum wage in the Equality Act 2010. The second of the four exceptions I want to talk about is service-related benefits and pay scales. Employers can use service-related benefits which could otherwise indirectly discriminate against younger workers who haven't been employed long enough to qualify for them. These benefits include extra holiday linked to length of service and incremental pay scales. There's a general exception for service up to five years. If an employer gives an additional day's holiday every year for the first four years of employment, that's permitted. But if the service requirement is over five years... The employer then needs to rely on the normal justification rules. An employer needs to justify that by showing a business need for the length of service requirement being linked to holiday. So if an employer offers free health insurance for employees with over five years service, they have to show it achieves a business need by rewarding experience, encouraging loyalty or increasing employee motivation. The third exception is redundancy pay. Let's look at statutory redundancy pay first. That's based on a gross weekly pay, length of service and age, with older workers benefiting from a higher multiplier. So employees under 22 years old receive half a week's pay per year of service. Those aged between 22 and 40 get one week's pay per year of service. And those over 41 receive a week and a half's pay per year of service, of course subject to a statutory cap which at the time of recording this in August 2020 is currently £538. An employer can offer enhanced contractual packages provided they base their scheme on the statutory redundancy format, including using the same age brackets. So you can be more generous, for example, by disapplying the statutory cap on weekly pay. 
You can be more generous by multiplying the amount allowed for each year of service by a factor of more than one or multiplying the overall amount by a factor of more than one. Any other kind of enhanced scheme, though, which doesn't mirror in terms of the age bands, the statutory scheme doesn't get an automatic tick. You'd need to objectively justify it. And fourth, but perhaps most importantly, retirement. Retirement is by its very nature the absolute epitome of age discrimination. We are ending your employment because you've hit the age of whatever the retirement age is. Up until I forget the exact year, but it was when I started practice. I think it was the 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 mid 2000s an employer could just dismiss anybody due to retirement at the compulsory retirement age of 65 in the mid 2000s a ridiculously complex procedure came in called the right to request working beyond retirement and if the employee wrote certain letters and looked a certain way and clapped their hands a certain number of times they could write a letter saying please think about keeping me for a bit longer and the employer could say yes or no as long as they jumped through certain hoops they were pretty much free to say no since 2011 the retirement age the compulsory or national retirement age has been abolished and requiring an employee to retire at a certain age is direct discrimination unless it can be objectively justified So an employer's got to be able to justify any compulsory retirement age by showing it's a proportionate way of achieving a legitimate business aim. Remember, as I said just before, that direct discrimination can only be justified for social policy or public interest aims. That was the case of Selden. And that showed how intergenerational fairness and dignity can be social policy reasons justifying a directly discriminatory retirement age. But each employer's got to justify its own scheme based on its own business situation and its own requirements. So an employment tribunal, if you have a compulsory retirement age, will look at why that compulsory retirement age is necessary and appropriate. It's harder and harder to win that argument nowadays. A tribunal thinks about whether you could have used a less discriminatory method to achieve your aims, such as fitness, if it's a physically demanding job, or competency tests, for example. They'll look at whether the compulsory retirement age goes on to achieve the business aim in practice, and they weigh up the effect of the legitimate aim against its discriminatory impact. The recent employment tribunal case of Hewitt and University of Oxford highlighted the danger that an employer faces when having a compulsory retirement. In that case, the employee was made to retire at 67 because of the University of Oxford's compulsory retirement policy. The university said there were legitimate business aims for the policy, including, guess what, intergenerational fairness and career progression for junior staff, facilitating succession planning and promoting equality and diversity on the basis that recent recruits were a more diverse group than the existing cohort, in particular the older employees. Now, the employee, Ewart, brought claims for unfair dismissal and direct age discrimination. Now, the employment tribunal agreed the aims were legitimate, the aims of succession planning, promoting equality and diversity, intergenerational fairness, etc. But the tribunal said that the means of achieving those aims weren't proportionate when weighed up against the discriminatory impact of the compulsory retirement policy. 
The policy only created 2% to 4% more vacancies than would otherwise have existed, which was trivial in comparison to the discriminatory effect of the compulsory retirement policy. In relation to facilitating career progression, senior posts were actually often filled externally and there was no plan in place for junior career progression as a matter of reality. And when looking at the diversity point, the evidence showed the retirement policy contributed little overall to the university's efforts to diversify. Now, employment tribunal decisions aren't binding on other courts. This is all too clear for this employer. A previous employment tribunal found their retirement policy wasn't justified. But the case for everybody shows that it's not enough to have legitimate business aims. You've got to be able to show those aims have enough effect on the ground to justify any discriminatory impact on employees. Again, it is very difficult to succeed in having a compulsory retirement age nowadays. So as an employer, think about whether compulsory retirement is necessary in your business. It's worth considering other methods to assess whether employees are fit to continue in work, such as fitness or competency tests. There's always more than one way to skin a cat. And as an employer, you've got to find the method least likely to draw blood. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Employment Law Matters. Now, I just want to tell you a little bit about a course that I'm putting on at the moment. About three years ago, back in 2017, I organised and led a closed door conference on how to market and boost your employment law business. So within a small room, a team of myself and three world class business speakers taught about 100 people about doubling their fee earning in two years. A few weeks later, I gave people access to the recordings of the course for £597 plus VAT. We allowed people to order it for 10 days and then I took it away. And at the time, I said I was taking it away forever. But I've decided the current economic situation is so exceptional, I'm bringing it back. Not only that, I'm slashing the price to make it a no-brainer for you. You can check out the detail now at bit.ly slash employment law 2020 let me tell you a little about it there's eight modules module one is presented by me it's on how to grow your business by a hundred percent in two years part one and i cover the mathematical formula for growing your business by a hundred percent in two years the holy grail of marketing i talk about why clients aren't created equal and i talk about using the 80 20 principle to build your business that's the theory bit the seven other modules are far more practical. Module two is presented by Rob Brown, the UK's leading trainer on networking. And he talks about networking mastery, three powerful ways to become a more confident networker. It's aimed at law firms and independent HR professionals. He talks about devising your networking strategy. He'll teach you how to handle a networking conversation, just how to walk into a room and start talking. And he talks about how to convert people you meet into clients. Module three is how to write a book in four weeks. I've written since hearing this module three or four years ago on stage. I was in the room listening. I was inspired to write my series of small books doing this. And since then, I've written seven small books in about three years. I do two a year. 
presented by Christopher Payne. Now, the slightly grey head amongst you might remember him. You won't remember the name, but you might remember something called the Effort-Free Lifestyle System, which was a huge thing in the 1990s. It was in all the newspapers. You sent off some money and got a correspondence course in return because that's how it worked in the 90s. He was the man behind it. He earned millions from it. And he's condensed his knowledge down in how to generate money from creating copy and a book. And he talks in Module 3 about picking the topic, writing the content, how to subcontract out the hard work, designing the cover and getting it printed. It is a life-changing module. It really is. I know so many people who were there on the day or who've watched the video since and have been motivated to successfully write their own book. I've done seven. Remember, the whole course is available at bit.ly slash employment law 2020. Module four, again presented by me, is on how to set up your own email bulletin service, something I do know a little about. I talk about writing the copy versus buying it in. I talk about what software to choose, how to set up your list, getting your first subscribers and how to launch within two weeks. And not only do I talk about the theory, I show you how to do it because I do it for somebody. I video myself actually setting up a mailing list for somebody. She's on the video as well. And you can see over the course of a couple of weeks how we built it together and how she actually started sending out her own email bulletins. Module five, again me, how to grow your business by 100% in two years, part two. And I talk about creating an irresistible offer for employment lawyers. I talk about how to generate regular income through a recurring fee model. I give you five ideas for employment law products you can create and sell. I've actually done one of them since and it worked phenomenally well. I talk about offering bulletproof guarantees and I talk about how you can put your prices up and still keep your clients. So that's module five. Remember, if you're interested, bit.ly slash employment law 2020. Module six, we're back to Rob Brown, the UK's leading networking consultant, is on abundant referrals, how to get your network to sell you and refer you. And Rob Brown discusses how to inspire your network to introduce you to their contacts. He'll teach you the very best people to ask for referrals and he'll show you how to script your referral conversations. Those conversations where you say to somebody, can you refer me to somebody else? Module seven is prevented, presented by Warren Cass, and he's talking about uh, social marketing. Warren is the author of the WH Smith bestseller book, Influence. He knows everything there is to know about social media, marketing and influence. And he talks about how to stand out in a crowd and get businesses to come to you, how to grow your influence with social media and strategies to become better known, easily found and instantly trusted. And module eight is the recording of a live Q&A that I did a few weeks after this course was presented live uh, with Chris Payne. He's the man behind the effort-free lifestyle system who did module three on writing a book in four weeks, where Christopher Payne and I answer a ton of questions that are asked by people who were on the course and also people who purchased access in the couple of weeks or the 10 days it was available for directly afterwards. bit.ly slash employment law 2020, all one word.
Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave a review on the podcast store or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe either at danielbarnett.co.uk slash podcast or go to your favourite podcast player and hit the subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Daniel Barnett from Outer Temple Chambers. Bye-bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.